electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. God, people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and also teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Today was a lot less placid than it looked. Dow gaining six points, S&P rising 0.11, uh, NASDAQ advancing 0.19%. While the market certainly looked comatose, we're witnessing some tremendous breakouts buy, 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 buy. all over the place. House of pleasure. Breakouts that typically would be held back by the gravitational pull of profit-taking or higher interest rates, or yes, politics. But this tape is uniquely bereft of profit-taking when it gets going. That's amazing given the gauntlet the market has had to run. For example, you could argue that rates have risen dramatically, yet the rate-sensitive stocks, well, should they be blasted? Wrong. The sector's most beholden interest rates, like the housing group, boy, they've been rallying like mad. You could argue that we have a political minefield on a daily basis, especially after the president's big G7 blow-up this very weekend. But, honestly, the market doesn't seem to care, or it downright likes Trump's actions, as I said this morning on Squawk on the Street. As for earnings, they're insanely positive, to the point that even when they're first received negatively, the judgment often gets reversed after a couple of days. But what about profit-taking, right? I mean, come on! What could possibly counteract people ringing the register? It's so natural, simple. It's being offset by price target boosts and activist investors trying to make things happen. Let's start with price target boosts because we don't talk about it enough on the show. But they are impacting stocks left and right. This morning, we got a very innocuous note from Wells Fargo about Nike. I say innocuous because the note wasn't really about Nike per se. It was about a meeting to have a Foot Locker and all the good things that they had to say about Nike. As the piece tells us, and I quote, Foot Locker believes that Nike's new premium 
footwear, silhouettes are resonating with consumers, and signature basketball may be stabilizing, end quote. Needless to say, that's very good news for Nike. So Wells Fargo raised his price target from 62 to 74. It gave them cover. Now consider where the stock's already trading, 74. Basically, this analyst has shrewdly used this footlocker visit as an excuse to get his price target to be more in line with what the company's really trading. But that doesn't matter. It, it really, the reason is irrelevant. A price target boost in this environment works. It keeps the ball in the air. And while Nike dipped a few cents today, a natural moment for profit taking was averted. And that's what happened today. All right, here's one that's, uh, this one's priceless. Not the jewelry, but it's priceless. Signet, okay? Not long ago, this company was a total sad sack. I told you a couple game plans away, you know, two game plans ago, though, you had to buy the stock. Even though it had been written off and left for dead, Signet's old management focused too much on being a lender rather than an actual jeweler. But it all changed. It all changed when a new CEO, Virginia Drosos, Ginny, uh, takes over and starts executing a turnaround of all turnarounds. Now, they take time. The last quarter was a big miss. So there were more price cuts. But then Signet blew away the numbers last week. And since then, the analysts have been scrambling to upgrade the stock. This morning, RBC said that they're intrigued by the trajectory of improvements. With the stock at 55, guess what they did? They raised the, raised the price target from 38 to 51. See, they got caught on the wrong side of the trade, just like we saw with Nike. That price target was way too low. I think that they that it will become relevant later as the turn is so obvious to everyone. I predict many number bumps and price increases down the road. They just haven't gotten their butts together yet. I think these retailers and apparel companies, I think they still have one more good day coming because some excellent numbers after the bell from RH, Restoration Harbor, which is up more than 20 points, and could go still further, by the way, and Dave and & Buster's, which had missed a slew of numbers, but not this time. And get this, Urban Outfitters gave you, in a filing with the government, incredible numbers this very evening. Here comes another good day for retail. Price target bump, price target bump, and price target bump. What about Allegan? Okay, until a week ago, everything Allergan did was completely for naught. But last week, two high-profile hedge fund managers took stakes in the huge company. Dave Tepper, now owner of the Carolina Panthers. I thought he was a Steelers fan. And Carl Icahn. Suddenly, analysts who'd frantically been trying to slash their numbers found themselves on the wrong side of the trade. So you have Mizuho raising their target from 150 to 176, one stronger Botox expectations, and of course, because of the activist involvement. See, that's self-fulfilling. Sometimes the price targets stay the same, but the thesis switches. Today, KeyBank said that Instagram, not Facebook itself, could be the primary driver for the social media kingpin, with a stock that had been faltering over the endless New York Times revelations that the company had done something predictable with your data. Key is using big numbers for Instagram, and it would make the story more compelling. So the stock uh, pops a couple of bucks as no one said anything positive the last couple of days. Here's the thing. Every stock that has broken out to new highs is a candidate for a price target boost. Let me give you something that I think you're going to get one. I think United Health is, good, is due for one tomorrow. I think Estee Lauder is due for one. I believe that Value can get one. You know Joe Papa's coming? I can see each of these stocks getting a major price target bump as early as tomorrow. Two more candidates, Electronic Arts and Activision Blizzards, which have overrun all their targets. Put it very simply, these analysts don't want to get left behind, and that's exactly what will happen if they don't start raising their targets now. Now, we knew the cruise stocks were just completely pulverized 
after Morgan Stanley released this survey that showed how pricing wasn't that good for the group. This morning, J.P. Morgan did its own survey, which showed that cruise pricing was very strong for Royal Caribbean and almost as strong for Norwegian Cruise Lines. Now the stocks in this once popular group have stabilized. What comes next? Well, typically the analysts, they creep out of their foxholes and they say, ah, I can say something. And they start getting them rolling again. Another typical example of what's happening right here. Eli Lilly. Now, not that long ago, Lilly was the clown of the game. I mean, just terrible. Every time it reported, the stock got crushed. But lately, it's been sneaking up seemingly for no good reason. J.P. Morgan couldn't resist. Its drug analyst came out today and, and, and said that Lilly was one of the best positioned names in the group. The note then totally rehashes exactly the same bull argument that could have been done 10 points ago in the 70s, except now it's in the mid-80s. Lilly, unlike a lot of other drug companies, has many different assets. And even though its diabetes franchise is very challenging, That's what drove it down to the 70s to begin with. It now is regarded as a diversified anti-diabetes wonder. Hey, J.P. Morgan, where were you at 76? What about the other components that are popping up the market, the activist investors? Okay, you don't want to sell an underperformer like Allergan if an activist might strike. Here's a classic example. Sempra Energy, a plain vanilla utility that hasn't done much at all, got a letter, just a letter, a letter. From Elliott Management, Paul Singer's firm, uh, talking about how it should unlock values. On that letter, what do you think happened? How about a 15% surge? On a letter, 15%. Can you imagine if you'd sold Semper Friday and you came in today? I mean, you'd feel like such an idiot. Just like if you had sold the poorly managed Athena Health right before Elliott made a $160 takeover bid. And that bid looks like more and more that it could succeed, given that Athena CEO Jonathan Bush resigned last week. Now, we don't know where the activists were going to strike next, but I can tell you that after running a full-day corporate governance conference last Thursday, you might want to presume that struggling companies with valuable assets might be getting targeted at this very moment. Look, here's the bottom line. There are many reasons why a stock stock market that you think should go down, as many people felt last night, doesn't go down. And most of them have little to do with trade. You should be thinking positively, not negatively. These days, if your stock's had a nice run or even if it hasn't, there are just too many good things that might happen to justify getting too pessimistic, even though I acknowledge that the stock market is overbought. And heaven help those who bail the day before an activist strikes and send your stock to the moon with a letter. Mitchell in Illinois. Mitchell. Hi, Jim. I uh, got a question about Kinder Morgan, which is the largest pipeline in the United States. Yeah. It's, it's been a dog since it cut its dividend. The Canadian government has announced it is buying KMI's transcontinental pipeline for 5 to $6 billion. This should leave the company almost debt-free. How will this affect the stock and when? And is is it a buy now? Well, you know, I don't really care for this group. I'm putting together a talk about that includes the problems that are that are involving this group. And a lot of them have to do with the fact that, frankly, the balance sheets are so bad. And I've got to tell you, I mean, I don't think the balance sheet's nearly as good as you think it is when it comes to Kinder Morgan. And that's why I can't recommend the stock. It will not be left virtually debt free by any means. Let's go to Peter in New York, please. Peter. Mr. Kramer. Yes. Do you consider Whirlpool? To be a best-of-breed company of the sort you talked about last week. No. So that it's no. Stopped. 
I do not. It continues to not know how to execute. I think they make real, real good washing machines. But I'm about real, real good stock prices, and they don't have it. All right, we're in the midst of a breakout. Think positively if you have stocks that have run. Aim if they have it. On everybody tonight, I'm comparing HP and Hewlett Packard Enterprise to see which company could be printing profits in this market. That's a hint, by the way. Then this guy's a real one, well, let's say he's a two-timer. No, not like that. I'm talking about Jack Dorsey's work at the helm of both Twitter and Square. And it's the number one player in the cash management industry. Could it be the number one player for cash in your portfolio? I'm focusing on what's ahead for Brinks. So stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. If I've said it once, I've said it a million times. Nothing in this business matters more than expectations. Just look at HP Inc. versus Hewlett Packard Enterprise. For those of you who don't remember when the old Hewlett Packard broke itself up at the end of 2015, it split into a PC and printing company, HP Inc., and then HP Enterprise, which got all the cool stuff, the enterprise hardware, the software, information technology, outsourcing business, everything that people thought should be high value added. Now, when the breakup happened, everyone assumed that the personal computer industry was just dead and printing, well, I mean, total commodity, right? So the whole point of this deal was to free the faster-growing HP Enterprise from the walking corpse that was HP Inc., at the time, everyone assumed that the enterprise company would be the growth play, got a high price journey multiple, while HP Inc. might at best end up being a nice, consistent dividend stock. It did have big cash flow. So the idea was, all right, it's going to be a steady grow over the real good yield. The idea that HP Inc. might end up being a growth stock would have sounded pretty far-fetched. And the notion that it might even grow faster than HP Enterprise, well, that would have gotten you laughed out of the room. Fast forward to today, though, and you know what? That's exactly what happened. Not only has HP Inc. become a growth story once again for a variety of reasons that I'll get into in a second, but HP Enterprise has become kind of a laggard. It's like the movie Trading Places with Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy, except without the big orange futures-based finale. Consider, over the past two years, HP Inc. has given you a 78% gain, while HP Enterprise is up 45% over the same period. Well, I've pointed out the iron in the situation before, the latest quarter really hammered the idea home. At the end of May, both of these companies reported what I thought were fairly, fairly solid results. Yet HP Enterprise lost more than 10% of its value in a single session, while HP Inc. surged up 4% the day it reported. And one reason for the, the disparity is that HP Enterprise is still working off the sky-high expectations that it had since the Hewlett Packard breakup. The stock is not living up to what we believed its potential would be. HP Inc., on the other hand, came into this world the beneficiary of incredibly low expectations. Nobody thought it would do particularly well, so when the numbers started to improve dramatically, the stock really caught fire. Buy, 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 buy. 
So how did HP Inc. and HP Enterprise trade places? First and foremost, HP Inc. came back to life thanks to the resurgence of the personal computer business. This is something we've talked about before, but I cannot stress it enough. For years, everybody assumed that the PC was in secular decline. Thanks to the rise of smartphones and tablets. Now, everybody's worried about peak smartphones and the PC market is enjoying a bit of renaissance. In fact, the industry is growing again. Do not get me wrong, though. It's not pure luck. HP Inc. didn't just stumble into this PC resurgence. They've done everything they can to capitalize on it, like designing some pretty extraordinary products. I mean, I've got to tell you, you know, because you've seen it, I am very proud of what I can do with this thing. Right? I mean, I, I can't write on it, but I can, turn, you know, well, whatever. Um, put it all together, and the company's PC division went from shrinking at an 8.6% clip in 2015 to growing at an 11.3% clip last year. And that's where things went right for HP Inc. But where did they go wrong for HP Enterprise? Initially, HP was supposedly, I told you, the sexy spinoff for the high-priced earnings multiple. But it might have been more accurate to describe it as a complicated spinoff. One that I have indeed struggled myself to understand. HP Inc. is simple and easy to understand. Computers, printers, some 3D printing for good measure. But HP Enterprise, it's Byzantine, it's complexity. First, they sell their enterprise uh, services division, Computer Sciences Corp., forming a new uh, company called DXC Technology, which had been a, a good one. It was good for my Chapel Trust. Then they acquire Silicon Graphics International. Then they snap up Microfosis. Then SimpliVity and, and Nimble Storage. Many of these moves made perfect sense, but you're left with a Frankenstein monster of a company that has a lot of moving parts. Now, as long as Dr. Frankenstein was running the show, the old Meg Whitman, whom we just thought the world of, investors were willing to take it on faith that she would, well, that she knew what she was doing. Season hand. After all, Whitman was the architect of the breakup in the first place. But earlier this year, she stepped down, and that, and, and that changes things. Now, HP Enterprise is a complicated, no-pay company without a clear strategy or a proven leader. Meanwhile, Dion Weisler, the CEO of HP Inc., has emerged as one of our favorite techie, one of our favorite executives. The guy has a great understanding of the business, and he has a vision of where it should be headed. He's, he's also a leader. He's jovial. He's funny. He's got a vision. So fast forward to late last month when we got the latest earnings reports. When HP Enterprise delivered its first post, Meg Whitman's, uh, post, first post Meg Whitman results, Wall Street wasn't exactly thrilled. Even though the company posted a nice top and bottom line beat with seemingly okay guidance, the stock cratered. Why? Because new CEO Antonio Neri told us that, and I quote, we expect the growth rate to moderate, end quote, and then added, quote, we see a more challenging second half, end quote. Oh, man. Well, you know, that's going to freak out investors. Even though Neri said the company would be able to hit its targets, the stock still got crushed. How about HPA? They report inline earnings with better-than-expected revenues, and the stock still takes off, rallying 4% because the company has a more bullish view of the future. Remember, HP Inc. was supposed to be the dividend stock, yet it's now returning roughly the same amount of capital to shareholders as HP Enterprise. HP Inc. was supposed to be the slower grower, yet its revenue increased by 13%, beating the 10% growth from HPE. No wonder HP Inc.'s stock is beating the stuffings out of HPE. See, HP stock is just, oh, I like it so much. The one area where they're roughly comparable, both stocks have very low multiples. 
HP Inc. sells for 11 times next year's earnings estimates. HP Enterprise sells for 10 times those numbers. I never thought that HP, that HP Enterprise would have a lower multiple than HP, but it does. Now, these are two very cheap stocks. But in truth, HP Enterprise maybe deserves to trade at a discount. At the end of the day, though, HP Inc. remains a steal given that double-digit growth. The bottom line, this business loves upsetting expectations. HP Enterprise was meant to be the golden child here. HP Inc. was meant to be an afterthought. Two and a half years after the breakup, though, and it's the other way around. And even after its magnificent run, you know what? I'd still be a buyer of HP Inc. here. That's how great Weisler and company turned out to be. Can I speak to Frederick in Minnesota? Frederick. Jim, hello. First, I wanted to thank you for all you do for the investors. Oh, out thank there. you. Thank you. Got a question about Lamb Research. I bought it some back in March during the chip equipment zeitgeist that was out there. It's since traded horribly. Last week, they did a special dividend for whatever that whatever that means. It's been down another seven percent this month. Do I pull the ripcord here or not? Thank yeah. you. And okay. Boomer, Look, boomer. this is a great great question, Frederick. And, and to be fair. Um, it's very difficult when when bad things happen at great companies. And that's what I feel like both with Lamb and also we could be talking about applied materials. These are fabulous companies, but people are worried about the end markets and the end markets are worried about Western Digital. The end markets, people are actually worried about Micron. I'm reading a lot about Micron that people are worried about. So. Let's just say the semis right now are the wrong place to be, incredibly so, uh, if they involve DRAM and if they involve Flash, not if they involve other things. But even NVIDIA had some troubles today. So I have to uh, caution careful, but I'm not going to tell you to sell lamp down here. It's too cheap. All right, nothing's more important than expectations. Although HP Enterprise was meant to be the golden child, things there have changed. I want you to consider buying HP Inc., Okay, much more mad money, including my take on Wall Street's uh, renaissance man. That's right, I'm giving Jack Dorsey his due. Then is Brinks on the brink of a turnaround? The stock surged after the company announced the acquisition of Dunbar, but is the move here to stay? And with questions looming about trade, uh, Trump's trade moves, well, how's it going to start impacting stocks if it ever will? I'm investigating. Stick with Kramer. For years, years, I have mercilessly mocked Jack Dorsey, the CEO of not one, but two publicly traded companies, Twitter and Square, for a seemingly absurd dual role. Over and over, I would needle him about it being, you know, let's say being a CEO is supposed to be a full-time job. So, I mean, how the heck can someone run two separate companies at the same time, right? I like to call him a part-time CEO because what else do you call it? I wanted him to run either Twitter or run square, but not both. And you know what? I was dead wrong. That's right. Jack Dorsey has been doing a dynamite job at both companies. And because I'm a big believer in accountability, I got to tell you, Dorsey deserves a lot more credit than he's been getting. (laughs) Consider over the past 12 months, both Twitter and Square have seen their stocks more than double. Just since the beginning of 2018, they're both up more than 70%. 
frankly, Twitter and Square are two of the best performing stocks that I follow. Now, look, I stand by my belief that it's kind of crazy to run two separate companies. I mean, a gigantic social media play and a payments technology powerhouse at the same time. There just aren't enough hours in the day to do either justice, or at least there shouldn't be. But man, Jack Dorsey has pulled it off. Talk about multitasking. So if this one CEO can give you a 72% gain in Twitter and a 77% gain in Square for 2018 alone, effectively doing the job with one hand tied behind his back, right, what can we learn from him? Assessing executives is an important part of picking individual stocks. I'm doing this uh, seminar on Wednesday uh, for Action Alerts for club members, and I've been thinking about this over and over again. And Jack really is. He's really the paragon and the paradigm. So we got some valuable lessons here. Let's take them one at a time. Dorsey may be able to handle jumping back and forth between Twitter and Square all the time, but for us, mere mortals, I I think it might be a little confusing. Well, let's start with Twitter, a stunning turnaround story with a stock that went from red hot to white hot after we learned that it would be replacing Monsanto in the S&P 500 last week. The secret to its success? Okay, two years ago, Twitter was a troubled company with an even more troubled platform, one that was overrun by trolls and bots. Basically, it was the place to go if you wanted to verbally abuse someone or overwhelm them with spam. Nobody likes an unpleasant experience, except for masochists like me, and even I tire of it periodically. So the company struggled to grow its active user base. This is when Dorsey realized that we need to clean up the platform. The most objectionable comments now get buried with the really uh, vile stuff hidden behind a disclaimer. Then Dorsey got aggressive about purging fake accounts. At the annual meeting a couple of weeks ago, he explained how Twitter's using machine learning to nip this stuff in the bud. In just the first week, the new system caught 330,000 bad actors, including dozens that turned out to be just a couple of people under a gazillion names who attacked me every day. And he did it. He cleaned up the platform. At the same time, Twitter finally figured out monetization, something that many social media companies have struggled with. For example, they started a data license business uh, where they organize your publicly available information in real time to make it easier for their clients to consume. I think Anthony Noda, by the way, the former chief operating officer who left to run SoFi earlier this year, I think he deserves a lot of credit, too. But Dorsey's the guy who promoted Noda from CFO to COO. Let's give him, let's give him that credit. I, I know that Anthony has. Put it all together, along with some aggressive cost cuts, and Twitter's profitability has improved dramatically. The margins are so much better, it's staggering. So how about Square, SQ? This is more of a straight-up growth story. Square started out making these uh, little credit card readers you can plug into your phone. But since they expanded to a bunch of payment services and they even lend money to their clients, uh, why not? They know exactly how much money these businesses are bringing in because they've got, they're in control of the register, so to speak. Now, the payment space has gotten pretty crowded and cutthroat, which is one reason this move into lending was such a good idea. Basically, Square gives the small business clients cash advances in exchange for a flat rate percentage of their daily credit card sales. This is now a huge growth driver for the company. Notice any similarities? Twitter figured out how to monetize the vast treasure trove of data that it's sitting on, and Square did the same thing. Maybe, just maybe, running both companies at the same time gives Dorsey some sort of strange edge. Oh, and I think Dorsey also deserves a ton of credit for hiring Sarah Fryer. She's been on our show as Square's CFO and operations lead back in 2012. He pretty much gave ex-Goldman Sachs or Fryer a mandate to do her thing and create value. And it has worked out very, very well for Square shareholders. Fortunately, in the very low teens, 
I, I learned of Sarah's incredible work, and we went pretty positive on the stock. We got that right. Now, you may think it's unfair that I keep praising Dorsey for work done by his subordinates, but hiring the right people is the single most important thing a CEO can do, especially if you're running two companies at once. Say what you will about Jack Dorsey, the guy who knows how to hire fabulous lieutenants, and he knows how to delegate. These are fantastic skills. The lesson here, not every great CEO needs to be a micromanager. As long as your chief executive is making the right big picture decisions and hiring a good management team, that's what counts. Before we cut to the commercials, just wanted to say that. Let me uh, offer Jack a little unsolicited advice. Jack. 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 All right. You want Twitter to keep going higher? Please introduce a paid service. Twitter is invaluable as a promotional tool, and lots of people in businesses would pay up. I know I gladly pay 15 bucks a month for TweetDeck, which is a must-have for power users like me. Yeah, there I am. I'm telling them pay more. Whoever does that, other than for something that's really good, like, you know, like Spotify. We pay a lot for Spotify, the Netflix, the Costco, the Amazon Prime, the X, Series XM. Anyway, as for Square, I have only – oh, of course, Apple. Uh, I have one, only one piece of advice for Square. Please, Jack, stop talking about Bitcoin. Look, I know Dorsey is a huge believer in cryptocurrency. Hey, heaven help him. But ever since Square announced it would roll out a pilot program to let its users buy and sell the stuff, its stock has become more of a play on Bitcoin than a play on all the excellent businesses it has and how well run it is. This is such a tiny part of Square's business, and the company has so much else going for it. Yet when you talk about this stuff often enough, the cryptoids have a way of taking control of the narrative. Square is not a cryptocurrency play. But there are days when it does seem to trade like one. That's crazy. The less Square talks about Bitcoin, the more control the company will have over its own stock. But here's the bottom line on this incredible situation. Despite all the doubters, including yours truly, Jack Dorsey has done an amazing job of running both Twitter and Square at the same time. While I'd be wary of buying either stock at these elevated levels, Dorsey deserves a lot of credit for their monster moves. And even though we were early in getting behind Square and managed to get behind Twitter after talking to Anthony Noto, we never apologized to Dorsey for dissing the great work he's done. Congratulations, Jack, on a job well done. Let's go to Wendy in Georgia. Wendy. Hi, Kramer. This is Wendy. I and my kids watch you so much. We think you're so awesome. Can you give a shout-out to Jade and JB for me, please? Jade and Jade. Who's the other one? Jaden. And Booyah. Booyah. <laughs> okay. Hey, Booyah, you guys. I'm calling about Etsy, E-T-S-Y. Oh, my. You know, Etsy's a few blocks from where I live, and I am so proud of what Etsy has done and what Josh Silberman has done, because I'm very Brooklyn proud. We do a lot of stuff supporting things. And he has been just incredible. And Etsy is such a great company, and it's doing so well. And everyone keeps saying, Jim, isn't it too high? Isn't it too high? No! Etsy's going higher still. And I love the kids. I saw some great kids. I always see great kids on the floor of the exchange. And everyone's like, ooh, excuse me, Mr. Kramer, can I bother you for a picture? I'm like... Are you kidding? You want a picture with this loser? I mean, I want a picture with you. Twitter and Square have made monster moves, and I'm giving credit where credit is due. Kudos to Jack Dorsey! There's much more made money yet. Back up the truck. I'm revisiting a stock I recommended nearly a year ago. See how it's fairy. I like it. Don't miss my take one. Brinks! 
Then I'm helping you make sense of stocks in the age of Trump's uh, traitorate. And all your calls, rapid fire, direction, lightning round. So stick with Kramer. Never underestimate a company that's run by people who believe in taking control of their own destiny. 11 months ago, 11 months, I recommended Alpha called Brinks. Oh, you know, at BCO. It's a big cash management company that you probably recognize from its armored cars. The one's labeled Brinks in big capital letters on the side. At the time, the stock was coming off a monster run higher as the activists at Starboard Value had brought in a new management team that was breathing new life into this 108 uh, I'm sorry, 180-year-old business. And you know we like Starboard. We always talk about them as being very smart activists. Sure enough, Brinks continued to rally, climbing from $67 when I told you to buy it, up to $88 in January. But then the market peaked in January, and Brinks' stock got slaughtered, sinking back down to 68 bucks just a few weeks ago. For a while there, it looked like that was you know, a very tough trade. Fortunately, CEO Doug Pertz, and that's P-E-R-T-Z, was not content to watch his stock languish in the 60s. In one bold move on the last day of May, Brinks got its groove back. The company announced a major acquisition. They snapped up an outfit called Dunbar Armored, one of their main competitors. And Wall Street absolutely loved this deal. In fact, Wall Street loved it so much that the stock of Brinks was catapulted up $11, or 16% in a single session. That kind of action is highly unusual. Normally, when a takeover gets announced, you expect the acquirer stock to go lower, right? Not higher. Instead, we got a truly explosive rally. Whenever we see such a stunning move after an acquisition, we always like to dig deeper in order to figure out whether or not the move makes sense. So now that Brinks' stock is back above, uh, back up to 80 bucks, giving us a 20% gain over the past 11 odd months, what should you do? Should you ring the register, buy more? Well, okay, let, let, let's first catch you up on the original thesis here, and then we'll address this Dunbar deal. A year ago, Brinks was a turnaround story. For the better part of a decade, this stock had been stuck in neutral. It just couldn't get any traction. But in late 2015, the very smart activist investors at Starboard Value stepped in. Their plan? They brought in a new CEO, uh, the aforementioned Doug Pertz, and encouraged him to improve the company's execution by cutting costs and embracing new technology. They migrated their software to the cloud. They optimized their fleet of armored cars. And they rolled out these cool closed-loop cash management systems where they have safes that actually count your money as you put it in so that customers can access that cash from their bank accounts right away. One more thing. Last year, I speculated that Brinks could be a stealth beneficiary of state-level marijuana legalization. Brinks itself won't handle drug money, but presumably somebody is being hired to watch over the vast piles of cash generated by the pot business. And anything that boosts demand for armored cars is only going to boost this company's bottom line because rates can go higher. You know, I look on Twitter. All anybody seems to want is, Jim, please come up with a pot play. Well, you know, this isn't one, but it's attenuated enough that I like it. Thanks to all these changes, by this time last year, Brinks had become a very consistent operator, but it still wasn't getting the respect it deserves from Wall Street. They were reporting big earnings beat after big earnings beat, but it didn't seem to matter. So why did the stock lose its momentum? Here's the thing. While the stock market can sometimes be slow to learn, sooner or later it catches up. After Brinks delivered another blowout quarter late last October, investors got wise to the fact that this was a much improved company. People started assuming that Brinks would report excellent numbers. So when the company did precisely that in October, the stock ended up selling off hard, down 10%. Why? Because there's something we've been increasingly like to talk about on the show. Because of great expectations. 
Brinks' stock had run up into the quarter, and while the numbers were very strong, they weren't strong enough to justify the newfound enthusiasm. Now, after that shellacking, management decided to take action. In January, Brinks acquired an alpha called Rotoban. That's a Brazilian cash management company for $145 million in cash. This was their seventh deal since March of 2017, and the company told us they were looking to do more deals. Even though this was a small transaction, the stock surged 11% on the news, despite the fact that Brinks also told us about a $13 million gold heist. Not a huge amount of money, but it doesn't exactly inspire confidence, does it? Now, the stock got slammed again in February as the market rolled over, and then Brinks reported a not-so-hot quarter with some meaningful shortfalls and mediocre guidance. Ouch. On top of that, because Brinks gets 70 77% of its revenue from outside of the U.S., the stock has been pounded by fears of an escalating trade war. Fast forward to late April, and the company delivers a decent quarter, a big revenue beat coupled with a small earnings beat. The fly in the ointment, the expenses seem very high, and management really maintained their guidance rather than raising it. You know, when you have one of these two numbers, either better revenues or better earnings, people always expect the company to raise it uh, later on. If they don't, the stock gets hit. Oh, and it sure hasn't helped that the activists at Starboard have been selling the position here as they ring the register. On what for them is a terrific long-term game, we can't ask for them to stay in forever. But that does mean that from here on, the story is all about Brinks alone and not Brinks getting a boost from some very smart activists. So there's the, the, the stock is, bouncing along the bottom at 68, and boom! Management shocks it back to life when, on May 31st, this is when they announced that acquisition of Dunbar Armored for $520 million in cash. Investors gobbled it up, and the stock surges back to 80 as of today. What has people so excited here? Within the United States, Brinks is the second largest cash management play. Dunbar's number four with a special emphasis on small to medium-sized retailers and financial institutions. The combination will make this company the top dog worldwide. How about the numbers? Brinks expects the deal to generate 40 to $45 million in annual cost synergies, although it might take three years to get there. Management says they believe the Dunbar acquisition will be additive to earnings next year. Wow. In fact, they're looking for a 90-cent boost to the earnings per share within two years, which is a big deal considering that Brinks should earn about 5 bucks and change uh, next year. They're also uh, anticipating some substantial tax benefits. In one fell swoop, Brinks changed the narrative. Rather than being a broken momentum stock, which is what it has become, this thing turned into an acquisition fuel growth story. So is Brinks the stock worth owning here? I mean, wouldn't it be chasing to buy the stock at these levels? Funny thing, Brinks is still selling for less than 15 times next year's earnings estimates, even after this run. If you buy it here, you're betting they can integrate the recent deals, something they have plenty of experience with, and deliver on those numbers. But it is a pretty big but. Brinks is definitely less attractive here at 80 than it was recommended what I recommended at 66 in July. Back then, I saw it as a slam dunk turnaround story. Now the turn has happened, and you're banking on management's takeover acumen. Here's the bottom line. At this point, I think Doug Pertz and his team and Brinks deserve the benefit of the doubt. (laughs) However, the stock has been a real wild trader. And as much as I like the Dunbar deal, this thing could be a lot more attractive on a pullback. And if you're patient, I think you'll get one. So here's what you should do. I think you can buy some here just in case you don't get that pullback. And then I would wait for the weakness before adding to your position to what I think is a pretty exciting story. Stick with Crate. It is time. 
much, Rob, for Ghost Morning. Let me save the talk. Bye-bye, bye. So just for the Ghost Talk by now. Let's get rid of you. Play this out. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Skate. That is over the lightning round. Crazy moment. Start with Todd in California. Todd. Hi, hi, Mr. Kramer. Hey, my stock is Discovery Inc. Do you think their content is undervalued? Yes, I do. I think Discovery Inc. Ah. is undervalued. By the way, I'm working on another one. I think Viacom stock might be undervalued. Not kidding. Let's go to Levon. Oh, Levon in Florida. Levon. Booyah from the Kramer Cadre. Oh, man, I love, I just love the rank and file Kramer. Let's go. Here's a good one for you. SCNS has a 180-day glucose sensing technology that should leapfrog Dexcom and Abbott's 14-day sensor. It's like a $3 stock. I don't know it well enough. I have to do more work because, you know, I like Abbott, and Dexcom's got that good glucose monitor. We're going to come back. Let's go to Joe in New York. Joe! Thank you, Mr. Kramer, for all of your practical advice and your knowledge about stocks. Thank you. And I've got a, I've got a good question for you. Um, it's about the stock ADT. Uh, since it spun off from uh, Apollo Global Management, uh, the stock price dropped all the way down to around 7 Yeah. Uh, so I bought some. And uh, I think it's got a lot of potential with its product, its security system. Disagree. So I'm wondering you Disagree. Th- I think it's just a disaster. I mean, they put it together with some other companies. They loaded it up. They'll probably have to take it private again. I mean, it's pathetic. Let's go to Don in Florida. Don. Greetings from St. Augustine, Dr. Jim. Old City. After the intuitive surgery split in October 2017, I sold half my position and invested in ABMD, a biomed. I've always liked those guys. You know, we were an initial supporter of those when the show began, and I'm not backing away. By the way, I also like ISRG. Both those are great. Let's go to Steven in Florida. Steven. Booyah from Boca, Jim. Long-time listener. Man, you're back from Boca. What's up? Calling about L brands. Well, look, it's a dividend play. It probably shouldn't be up uh, with a 6% yield. It probably should be a little bit higher. We got a good number for Urban Outfitters. I think people probably take that stock maybe to 40. But at 40, ka-ching, ka-ching, sorry, Dan in New York. Dan. Hey, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. No problem. I have some. Uh, I have some, and I'd like to buy more of Screaming Hot ADP. What do you well, think? Well, you should because Carlos Rodriguez turned out to be amazing. I am a huge believer in Carlos, and he didn't let us down. He made us big money. Ka-ching, ka-ching. And that, ladies and gentlemen, conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. are we supposed to make sense of the president's trade policy, Uh, let alone what it means for the stock market? In other words, why didn't stocks get slammed today, even though President Trump had a big trade-related blow-up with our G7 allies over the weekend? First, what does it mean to anger the leaders of America's traditional allies so much that they feel compelled to respond in public? Does Trump want to end the G7? Isn't that the natural outcome of his actions? Here's my hypothesis. Yes. The president doesn't really care for many of these leaders. In his view, the United States has been propping up Europe for decades. And for what? The Cold War's over, so why keep having a Cold War-style foreign policy? Now, this isn't my view, but it appears as if Trump can't seem to figure out whether Putin or Merkel is at fault for the mess in Ukraine. 
So he wants Russia back in, restoring the old G8. He thinks Russia can do more to help the United States than Germany. And unlike the Germans, Russia has no equivalent of BMW or Mercedes that they're dumping here. They're, they're more of a natural resource economy, so they don't really compete with our manufacturers. Let me put it like this. As Trump sees it, the Russians can help keep down the price of oil if they would pump more. What can the Germans do for us? He'd probably say nothing. Yes, that's how he thinks. Plus, our president hates the idea of, our, of any sort of power equivalence. He can't stand Justin Trudeau because, in his mind, Canada's not much of a country to begin with. Second, why does the president allow so much chaos to emanate from the White House and China? Okay, when I was a judge in The Apprentice, Trump frequently and needlessly, frankly, tried to pit one contestant against another. He thought that would produce the best results. Then he'd fire the loser. But only after tremendous angst about it because he always felt bad about the firing. He regarded The Apprentice as a magnificent success, so he regards this method as a great success, too. He doesn't look at it the way we do. We're not trying to win the Nielsen overnights, as he was back then, nor are we trying to win the 2020 election, as he is right now. So here's how things look through Trump's prism. Contestant Steve Mnuchin and contestant Peter Navarro, well, they've hung on for a while. Contestant Gary Cohn was fired real early. Contestant Larry Kudlow is moving up rapidly. People trying to relate this West Wing reality show to the stock market are being way too serious. Not about the stock market, but about the White House. Third, what is the end game with China? All right, my best guess, this is really about intellectual property, as it should be. The only way to anger the Chinese to the point where they give up and just totally remove themselves from any possibility of trade cooperation is to ban any investment by the Chinese into the United States. That will most likely happen by the end of this month. That's right. I think by the end of the month, China won't be allowed to buy any American companies of any size. Get ready for that. All right, how about the end game with Germany? To me, that's all about only blocking the import of their cars in the U.S. If, they, if they've been made in overseas factories built since he became president. I know that this seems impossible to regulate, but believe me, he may just say that you have to pay more than 10 percent on Mercedes or BMW, period. End of story. If the majority of it is not made in the U.S. Finally, the most important question, why isn't this crushing the stock market? Anytime the market's really about to roll over, Trump will walk things back a bit and send out Larry Kudlow to say that he's an optimist and everything will be fine. Trump enjoys keeping his allies, his enemies uh, all off balance, even the stock market. Plus, judging from today's positive actions, there are plenty of investors who clearly aren't worried about these things. Some think Trump's dead right about trade and are buying the market because of his trade view. At the end of the day, though, President Trump thrives on chaos. And whether you voted for him or not, that's the world we're in now. Can it really be that simple or that simplistic? You bet it can. Stick with it. After getting blasted on Twitter all weekend, except for my tomato plants, it was very gratifying to see so many people say thank you so much for the restoration hardware call. All I can say is we're huge customers and I believe in the company and it's absolutely right that it is up this much and believe it or not, it can go up even further. I like to say there's always a bull market summer. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer and I will see you tomorrow. You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, 
The ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.